Captain Picard, priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Am I ready, Roman? And welcome to the Readier Room, not to be confused with Earl Grey. This is the only TNG rewatch podcast with onset insights from those who worked on the show itself. Uh, my name is Mitchell Sigurds, Chief Consultant of Services, and as always, here's my life partner, Brandon Hobbs, Head of Resources Management. Brandon, how are we today? I'm doing great, Mitch. Thanks. It's How are a, you? I'm fantastic. I'm super excited about not only this podcast, but about episode two of this podcast. That's twice as many as we had last week. And today, we are here to talk about episode two of TNG, which is just a, a magical endeavor, I believe. Um, the naked now, as it were. Right now, you the and I are clothed, now. but we're still qualified to speak on the naked now. So spiritually, spiritually, and it's great to start at the beginning of the naked now, because I think the lot of the strengths of this episode to me happen within the first, I don't know, five, three minutes like that, that before the intro of the show and when they're setting up the conceit (laughs) of what the episode is, that that sounds insulting. But I, I, I think I'm I'm being honest because you start the episode, there's um this maroon ship, they beam aboard. And, like, everything's super weird over there. It's in complete disarray. People are either missing or dead. And there's a lot of space intrigue that um, is pretty interesting. And also very much like later TNG episodes to me. Where they set up this scenario that, that you know, gets your mind working. Oh, I want to know more. What's going on? And that's, that's, that's interesting. I think that's one of the parts of this episode that works the most. I don't know. Right. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, you said it's not insulting, but I I would say the same thing, but I would argue that's like the only part of the episode that works. Yeah, not to not to spoiler things too much, but it's certainly a, a downhill trajectory um, that this episode works on. I, then again, it's more of like a flat line, but it starts high and then, yeah. and then craters and then flattens out right at the very bottom of the graph yeah right for a brief of scant three to five minutes we can pretend that uh it's pretty good television we almost thought it would be an interesting show we did we Um, did i'm I'm actually shocked shocked because i don't remember this episode being this bad and i don't remember this episode being so much worse than the first yeah, the pilot episode. I had very vivid memories of the pilot, and I guess those kind of overshadowed most of season one to me, almost as if I don't remember it at all. Um, and with this episode, it really asks the question of how did TNG stay on the air um, in the early seasons? And it's not like we weren't without our uh i guess the the consequences of of the quality of the, of the tv and there's actually a good example of that um in the beginning of this episode one of the very first scenes we see the bridge of the enterprise and you know our principal cast is all there among them is troy and everybody says this when they watch the episode having seen later tng but like what is up with troy's look in this episode she's got right, very right. strange hair very strange costume um everything about her just looks off looks strange and this was intentional on the part of wardrobe see the idea was that initially the betazoids as a as a species as a race would be very very vain and put a lot of stock into appearances and the way to to signify that to the audience was for every episode troy would have a different look going on whether it was her clothing or her hair or both or you know something it's she would be a, a very appearance driven person and would always have this extensive and varied wardrobe so from episode two they're like all right here's here's another crazy new look now like i was saying that we weren't really 
killing the ratings at this time. And episodes like this, I mean, you can see why. Um, so that idea really <clears throat> did not pan out just because we didn't have the funding to, to keep making these new costumes just for one character to wear one time. It, it wasn't economically feasible. So it's a good example of how, no matter how creative or great your idea is, you're really, really bound by the constraints of, of the studio system and of finances. Uh, right. It, right. It's, it's inescapable for anybody in the industry. Right. And see, I didn't even remember this being, uh, this being part of, of Troy's character back in season one, because it does kind of get dropped unceremoniously. Right. It, it's one of those things where you just look back on it now and it's like, oh yeah, I forgot that we were trying to do that. And if you're, right. if you're just a regular viewer, you're just like, why did, what is up with it? Why would they do that? You know? Um, of course, everybody's wardrobe was a little different with the earlier uniforms, but Troy's, it was really, uh, definitely really standing out in, in a less than pleasant way. Um, ah, geez, but uh, that's most of what's good about the intro. That you know they, just, they introduce the crew. You go over this ship, and they see like all this strange shit going on. Like, oh yes. So, do you remember the day that we were filming uh, that that introductory scene, uh, where they're on this other starship and everybody's like frozen? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So, Unfortunately. <laughs> Hi, this is a great story, and I'm very excited to tell you guys, um, all of you out there in TV land. So, in the beginning of this episode, and they're investigating the phenomenon, one of the things that they see is that this other starship, they've, like, opened the airlock, and it's very cold in there, and everybody is frozen. They have, like, there's snow on the ground, there's snow on their bodies, their skin's all, like, discolored and blue, and... Like, there's frost on them and all this stuff. So, you know, I, I'm not a special effects expert, but I I have a healthy interest in this stuff. So I went to the, our special effects guys. I'm like, you know, this, is, this isn't real snow, right? How do you make this snow? And people ask right. me this at conventions all the time because they remember when Denise Crosby got frozen in uh, Encounter at Farpoint. They remember this snow scene in the second episode. How do you make the snow? Well, now I can tell you because I, I did that research. What they do is they take a mixture of like baking soda, dry ice, and some of the discharge from a fire extinguisher. They mix all that together and it makes this, this, it has the appearance of snow. It doesn't have the same feel, but you're not going to feel it on TV, obviously. So it has the appearance of snow, which is great. It's very cheap to make, very easy to make, and uh, you can do it very quickly. Um, the only drawback is that given the dry ice component, if it gets on your skin for any amount of time, it can cause like some irritation, rashes, got to go to the hospital. It's a whole thing. So, and this is this is why this is such a crazy story. We had to get it on all of our extras that day, and they had to sit there pretending to be frozen stiff and dead while uh, the actors read their lines. And it, you know, filming a scene is not a trivial process. It, that takes like at least a couple hours and they could only have this sh this snow stuff on them for like 15 minutes at a time they were running on and off the set over and over again to wash it off like you put some ointment on their skin reapply it for the next shot yeah it was crazy it was not pretty yeah it was not pretty and it, it's funny because the uh the inherent stillness of that scene when you watch the episode <laughs> really contrasts with what was actually going on on the set that day exactly which was just complete chaos it's such a quiet complete scene chaos. it's you know it's just the introduction to the plot it's not very consequential but to make it happen oh my goodness now you know labor laws for actors uh union laws have changed a lot since then it's not the kind of scene you could do these days so in a way this this naked now episode is kind of a time capsule of that guerrilla filmmaking, you know, that rogue style that you could do back in the 80s that uh, oh, yeah, yeah. you really can't replicate these days. And Yeah, I guess there is. There is something kind of magical about that. Right? You know, knowing that and watching that scene again, mm -hmm. it's, it's something you wouldn't even expect. Something, you know, you, you just don't even consider. But it's really something. It is. It is. It's... um. It really when you when these episodes lack like the quality that you expect of later TNG plots and writing, 
it's these moments that that really bolster up the end product and um you really only get this appreciation by being there but you know that's the beauty of the readier room right now everybody can right, share in sharing this it's wonderful so you know so, they, yeah go ahead oh i was gonna say you know we've we've been spending a lot of time it's, it's funny because you 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 opened this you opened this episode up saying that the first three minutes are probably the best working part of the episode mm. and we've already spent all this time on the introduction i'm just um, trying to avoid getting so to the rest of the episode you can you can <laughs> well it's just funny because you can see how much how much work and love actually went into these first three minutes of this episode yeah it's um a real labor labor of love yeah yeah. So on that note, mm. on that note, I've got a story for you. Really? Ooh. From the first three minutes. Rubbing my of hands the together and ready to hear this. And this is before they even get onto the other ship, right? Okay. Opens up, they're on the bridge, and the crew is receiving a transmission of some kind from from the ship. Mm. Um and you'll notice that the the dialogue the acting the performance <laughs> really isn't doesn't line up with with typical typical TNG performances yes i you know yeah mm -hmm. i remember it was a little weird right when we were watching it right it's it's yeah. it almost feels like you stepped onto a different show mm -hmm. for a moment and that's actually because you have do tell so <laughs> The day we were filming at Paramount, the uh, the neighboring lot at the time actually belonged to a soap opera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so the transmission that we're hearing there, it was actually just audio bleed coming from that soap opera. It repurposed to be the transmission that the crew hears to get onto that ship. And it was a complete accident, as I'm sure you might expect, um, literally done in real time. Right. But it, it, it's it's amazing because you can you can kind of tell because when it, the shot is lingering on on Patrick and he's like supposed to be hearing this transmission, the the timing of the cut is completely misaligned with the timing of the yeah. the, the audio itself. So it's you can you kind of have this sense like is a cue off here? Like what's going wrong? Um, right. Yeah, it's just one of those happy accidents. It's, for it's for amazing. an impromptu performance like that. I thought it went exceptionally well. And you know, exceptionally. Well. if I can be petty for a moment, everybody thought that, because there was this kind of rivalry going on, you know, two shows filming on adjacent lots. Everybody thought that that soap opera would outlast us because they saw, you know, what we were doing. And like, oh, that's not going to, that's going to get canceled immediately. Well, you know, still beating heart. Where are you now? TNG, people are talking <laughs> about it years later. We got you. We got you. That's right. That's right. It, it does feel pretty good. Ugh, okay, I got to, had to get that pettiness out of me, but uh, yeah, there's a, it's it's shocking, um, just how dedicated we are to never ever mentioning the other ninety percent of this episode. Yeah, it's something I really would rather just not do. Yeah, but uh, it, it's so fucking, it's so bad, it's so bad. Unfortunately, the Readier Room episode two is not over yet, so it's the only thing we can do. Um, one of the. Uh, so the plot of this episode, right? The Naked Now. It, it becomes this whole thing about um, this forced intoxication virus thing that's sweeping through the crew. And it's it's very strange. But longtime fans of the, of the Star Trek franchise will note that this is a very similar phenomenon to what happened in a plot of the original series. And in fact, at some point in this episode of TNG... The characters, like, browse through Federation logs and, like, oh, this is similar to what happened to the original Enterprise with Captain James T. Kirk. And, you know, that sounds kind of hokey, but we were very, very worried um, about old Star Trek fans and their ability to accept new Star Trek, right? There's no Vulcans on this on this crew, you know. There's no William Shatner. This is not what I mm -hmm. love. Well, why would I watch this? So we wanted to be very sure to pepper in a lot of references to the old original series, or I guess the original series. Um, 
And this was one of them. It's like, oh, you remember you remember uh, that episode, right? We're doing a take on that. Come watch our show. And we wanted to have one of those references in every single episode. Just to keep people coming along, at least throughout like season three or so. By that point, we hoped they would uh, just be on board with it. But right. very quickly, we were like, well... What are we going to do this week? What are we going to do this week? What are we going to do this week? How are we going to reference uh, the original series? And like the writer's room was really banging their heads together trying to make this happen. And I think it was Michael Dorn who at some point was like, well, I mean, the, the ship is still called the Enterprise, right? That's enough of a reference for the for the original series fans. And everybody, you know, had a, had a moment where they nodded in unison. And that's how we were able to keep our reference streak alive. That's so, genius. It is. It is. Uh, they say that, some people say that actors aren't creative people, that they just kind of do what their direction is and what their scripts say, but really they are. Um, we had a lot of creative contributions throughout all elements of the production from our team of actors, and there's no way that TNG would have became what it did if we had cast different people in, in different roles. Oh, for sure. For right. sure. So it's, and we're going to see that a lot going forward as well. Oh yeah, it's um, it's just there's a reason that these are the people that you see at the the Trekkie fan conventions, right? They are the ones who mm -hmm. made it, and uh, you know we were there, we did our part, and the show wouldn't have been what it was without us either. But you got to give credit where it's due. Definitely. So, so that's that's the conceit of the episode, though this 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 intoxication thing, and I think that. The decision to do this is what made the episode as bad as it as as bad as it ended up being because mm -hmm. when somebody's drunk, they act a little differently than they usually do. And right now, early in the season, early in the series, we're still getting to know all these characters. So when you make the plot of an episode is these characters who you don't fully know yet are acting differently than their usual selves, it's very difficult to appreciate that because your standard of where they should be isn't fully set yet right and it just makes right. things uh baffling to the viewer um because like you don't know if they're becoming something that is really them but that they keep buried beneath the surface or if they're just changing their personality to something that they would never be it just it right. doesn't work and, it, and not not only is it not not only is it baffling, hmm. the the viewer can't appreciate it. Yeah, exactly. Right. If if you you could take this exact script and move it to season three or four, and it would work just a little better. It still wouldn't be great because there's a lot of it's problems. Still, it still isn't great because we're watching it knowing what these characters are, yeah. and it's it's still not good. Yeah. Like it, it still doesn't doesn't put them into it doesn't give them any meaningful interactions with each other. I guess except for. Uh, uh, Data and Yar having sex. Oh my god, you want to talk about that? Well, do, do I want to? Not really. Not really, we? but... <laughs> so, I have a lot of problems with this for a, a number of reasons, but mainly, chiefly, like, I am very... I love the Data character because because he's an android. Like, that's that's his thing. And it creates a lot of fun moments when um, there's just a little bit of a disconnect between him and the rest of the crew. If you take Data yeah. and widen that disconnect where he just doesn't understand anything, that that doesn't work very well for me. And if you take him and, sh and uh, shorten that disconnect where he is essentially human, then that also does not work for me. Data is like just one step behind everybody else, and that's what makes all of his interactions with the crew very endearing. Um, in moments like this, when he literally has sex with Yar, um, he's basically just a human at that point, and it, the, his reason for existence is nullified. Um, yeah. There's no... Well, at least, at yeah. least it gave us... Uh, it gave us confirmation that he does, in fact, have a penis. This is true. I, I, you know, if you go on Usenet back in the day, there was a lot, a lot of debate about this. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I so a lot of time was actually spent in the writing room <laughs> discussing Data's penis. It sounds uh, ridiculous. in preparation for this scene. It, it it does sound ridiculous, but you know it is something that you kind of have to 
get out of the way when you're dealing with an advanced android like this. Well, everything that we uh, wrote had some amount of logical backing behind it. Like that Star Trek, we were really good at that, uh, of making right. sure that all of this more or less quote unquote checked out. And if an android was going to have sex, that would have to check out too. Right, right. So, God, we spent hours, hours sitting around discussing this. You know, was it going to be telescopic? Was it going to be inflatable? Mm. Always erect? You know, how big was it going to be? Right, so I think one of the strengths of this show is that we always had an eye for detail. Mm -hmm. And this was definitely no exception. What are we and end up settling on with that? I think I think it's oh, it's tough to really truly remember because obviously it doesn't go into that level of detail in the script, right? It fades to blur on camera. But I think we decided it's I think we decided on a retractable rod mm. that's just stored full mast inside his body. So kind of like a turtle's head coming yeah. out of the shell. I, I, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. It's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, but I think, I think you get, you know, you're talking about those two extremes with data where he's, he's got too little in common or too much in common with humans and that kills him for you, right? Yeah. I think you, you almost get a little bit of both of those extremes in this episode. Oh, yeah? Because not only is, you know, later on when he's infected somehow... Yeah, He's which some, I, just in and of itself is is an affront to... I don't think we need to go too far into why that's ridiculous, that an android can contract a human virus. But what? Yeah, go on. Later on, you know, once he's... Once he's contracted the virus, we get... We're treated to some really goofy slapstick scenes with him. Oh my god. Which don't land at all. Like, there, there, there's a scene where he's talking to Picard on the bridge, and Picard walks away, and then Data goes in as if to lean on him, as if he hadn't walked away, and he just falls on the ground. Right, and it's, it's, it's the focus of the shot. Like, it's very clearly a slapstick comedy moment that's front yeah, and center. Yeah, oh, they, they, the they thought they were being, they thought they were being real fun with that one. Like, humor in Star Trek can work, um... But it's it's always worked when it's been more subtle. Um, I, I yeah, in fact yeah. I can't recall such an overtly intentionally comedic moment, um, or one that was supposed to be comedic. Obviously, this one didn't land, but it just takes you out of it, and that is a good example of the tone of this episode not working in any way at all. Um, because it's, it's, it's bouncing between these two, um, extremes where they have these like comedic, everybody's drunk moments and these like tense, oh my God, everybody's going to die moments. And they often coexist together, like within one scene mm. and it makes it difficult to feel anything at all. As a, Yeah. As a so no, no scenes hit the mark at all. Right. And they could have done this in a way like where this story was actually um unnerving or disturbing in some way because the idea of like oh my god i'm just slowly losing control of my mental faculties and there's nothing i can do about it you can frame that in a very serious way and it, it would be pretty interesting as a science fiction story um instead we have um data you know trying to lean on on thin air and falling to the floor and we have uh a a very special japanese man playing with blocks on the floor of engineering um oh not him can we <laughs> let's talk about him for oh my god so I, this is okay if you recall longtime fans of the readier room will recall that in Farpoint Station, we had that scene, the courtroom scene, where we had all of these exceptional extras that um, we shuttled in from various homes and, and uh, yeah, just special individuals. Well, after we had concluded filming, uh, that was the week before we shot The Naked Now, 
And everyone had their handler come and pick them up, take them home. And, you know, they got back on the shuttle and they went home. But when we came back to shoot, we found one man still lurking around the set. Uh, nobody had came to get him. He was not <laughs> scheduled to be on any of the of the shuttles that were leaving. And we we had this big question mark. What do we do? It was it, it was insane. It, what do you do in that situation? Right, because it's not like a child where um, there's there's very specific laws to outline the treatment of them. Remember, this was back in the eighties. This was a long time ago. We really did not know what to do, and he just would not get off the set. He was sitting on the floor of the engineering set, and we had to shoot, shoot you know, the episode. Well, eventually we realized that when people get drunk, they, some of them tend to act like, you know, a special kind of person. Right. And we could use this. It, it would be a way to incorporate this 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 issue into the episode and and it worked pretty well i would say um the scenes before he's playing on the ground are a little less effective especially before he's infected by the by the the virus floating around the ship that's a yeah, little yeah i remember yeah that took a few takes that took a few takes it did it did and, and like, some creative I, editing will wheaton couldn't keep a straight face in the same shot with him it anyway um but once that was out of the way, and he, the the script called for him to be um, drunk on the floor, playing with the, the data chips as if they were blocks, he took to that like a natural, and it went extremely well. Like you can see in the final episode, you, you look at that actor and you think, wow, they are very, very good at playing um, a mentally impaired drunk person. And well, now you can know the reason for that. It It worked very much to our benefit and luckily um right after we had finished shooting um the bus stop a bus had stopped there and we were able to kind of push him onto it so that problem took yeah. care of itself another another extremely creative bit of uh i guess you know adaptation to the situation here mm -hmm. that, that we're seeing in this episode um really really genius stuff but i did i did want to go back to data again because there's so many problems there's a lot to unwrap with data indeed and i want to go back to before he gets infected because he features pretty pretty prominently throughout the episode um he's, mm. he's on the ship he's doing the uh, the research on the computer into something, whatever he's researching. He gets to name drop Captain Kirk or something. Or maybe right. that was Picard. Data was there anyway. Um, the Data's dialogue is so ham-fisted in this episode. It's really it's unreal. It's unreal. And later down the line, I've always felt like the writers did an exceptional job with uh, playing up Data's quirkiness, you know, mm. without essentially making him, without doing the obvious, right? Right. So in this in this episode, you know, he's sitting at the at the computer doing his research, and Riker comes up, and he uses the phrase "needle in a haystack." Yeah, and then instantly Data gets this look on his face, and as the audience, you just groan, and you're like, oh my god. Well, the, 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 the whole scene is, like, written around that moment of, of Data not knowing what Neil in a haystack means. Whereas, further down the line, first use the, the phrase Neil in a haystack. We would kind of already assume that Data knows that. Right. But later down the line, it would just kind of be, not not a throwaway comment, but... It wouldn't be the focus of a scene. They, That's what the. It felt like the scene was focusing on that funny joke. Right. It scare quotes around every word. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's. Yeah. That's kind of what I was saying when you make the gap between Data and the human crew members too wide. It's like. Right, right. Why exactly. would somebody waste their time on such a trivial task looking for a needle in a haystack? It's like, all right. Right. 
Come right. on. No, it's it's, they, it's just baffling. They do this somewhat better. Um, I think it's like season five. I forget exactly when, but um, the idea of like watching a, a kettle and it'll, you know, it seems like it would take longer to boil comes up. So Data's like, oh, I'm going to run some experiments and you know watch this kettle. But he very explicitly says that my, that his perception of time hasn't changed. Like, obviously, Data yeah. knows that the kettle's uh, boiling point is not going to be affected by looking at it, but rather, like, the way that he or humans perceive time. And that's, like, a, a logical thing for him to to experiment with in his quest for understanding humanity. Like, how, exactly, how yeah. do humans perceive time? Because that's not... Uh, a readily observable scientific fact and it's also a saying that he grasps the real meaning of as soon as he hears it there's there's none mm-hmm. of this like why would i look at a kettle like the kettle's not gonna take longer if i stare at it. It, it it sidesteps that completely but also is effective in being like well you know data uh is not human and that's really the point of all this he's not human he doesn't know these things so they yeah, they, they yeah. the writers and- uh, master that eventually, not so much right. early on. No, and and the the juxtaposition of you know being used to watching the newer episodes in syndication and then jumping back to this is very jarring. Right. There's this um, there's this overarching like excuse where like oh well in season five Data had spent five years around humans so he knows more and. Like, yeah, that makes sense, but I can tell you, I mean, I was there. That was not the intention from the start. So Yeah. Yeah. No, it and uh it doesn't excuse bad writing. It does not. It does not. At all. Speaking of bad at writing, and God help you if you could at all figure out what number of ways I'm taking that segue. Um <laughs> there's another character who figures very heavily into this episode, and that is Wesley Crusher. Mm-hmm. And I have the the biggest problem with how Wesley Crusher is introduced in this episode. So to set the scene, Jordy goes on the away team. He contracts whatever disease is going on, and that brings him to sick bay. And he's like feeling like shit in sick bay. So the Crusher, the doctor, says, "Jordy, you're confined to sick bay." And then she walks off to her office to go report her findings or whatever. Jordy, for no seemingly no reason at all, just takes off his communicator gets up, leaves sickbay without any resistance, goes to visit Wesley Crusher in Wesley Crusher's room, where Wesley Crusher's playing with some inventions he made. And Jordy's like, Wesley, what are you doing? And Wesley's like, oh, I'm playing with this uh, device that can make a recording of Captain Picard saying anything I want him to say. And I'm playing with this small tractor beam device that I made. And then Jordy's like, oh, that's great. Bye. And then he just leaves. <laughs> And the only narrative purpose of this scene is to establish that Wesley has those two things because those are both going to figure into the plot later on. And it is so... It, when you watch that scene, you just know that this is this is solely to get this out of the way, to introduce this well, to the I, audience. I, I remember you saying exactly that when we were watching the episode. Right. <laughs> like, this is going to come up in the plot later. And it sure did. Yeah. In probably the clumsiest way possible. That was... So, Wesley becomes, like, the villain of the episode in some way. He manages to convince the drunk crew that he is now captain. And I just want to point out that this... All of this, the way that they write drunk people... It does not make any sense. You don't get drunk and then be like, well, I guess it makes sense that this 15-year-old's the captain now. No, no, no. It doesn't... <laughs> For anyone who's had any amount of alcohol before, you would know that it does not do that to you. And, I mean, interestingly enough, I'm sure you could probably guess this. Yeah. No one on the writing staff had ever actually been drunk before. Shocking. Oh, my God. So... When you're seeing these intoxicated versions of the crew and, uh, you know, just seeing how how poorly written their drunk versions are, that's why. Um, they literally had to 
have a little excursion one night out to uh, a number of bars and, and strip clubs, and um, they just sat there observing drunk behavior. Um, and that's that's actually inspiration for the the Tasha Yar scenes we've seen in the in the final oh cut. God. But yeah, really, really just. A lot of the behaviors in this episode don't make any sense. The fucking Tasha Yar stuff. Jesus. That was so difficult to sit through. Do you remember the fan that we had on set? Oh, man. Tell tell the story. Tell the story. (laughs) All right. All right. So there's a scene, I think, in what? The fourth act? It's pretty late. Where it's, yeah, it's late. And it's also completely just unconnected divorced from everything else in, in in the in the episode it adds nothing it goes nowhere just a complete non sequitur and you'll see why so we uh we cut to tasha walking down the corridor mm-hmm. and uh she begins she begins to walk up to this random ensign and and just make out with him just like tongue kissing, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. Cringing. So, <laughs> fun fact, the role of that ensign was actually uh, the prize in a contest we were running, which was to be on the show and win a kiss with Marina Sirtis. Who, right? it, and, it, you know, observant fans will know is not Tasha Yar. <laughs> yeah, observant fans will also know that uh, Sirtis and and Denise were, you know, supposed to have opposite roles, right? So this was, we ran this contest before they had switched roles. So this guy comes on set thinking he's going to make out with Marina Sirtis. Oh, God. And I guess that day he didn't notice until that scene was in the middle of shooting. That it was Denise. And, uh, it was Denise, and he, he was very, very surprised <laughs> as he watched Denise slowly saunter up to him. And so when when you watch the episode, that bewildered look of mild disgust was actually completely genuine. I, I want to say that it's one of, another one of those things that works because he's not supposed to be drunk at the time, and like it would make sense that he would be put off by this, but like I can't. It's very difficult to get over. Ideas of um, consent were not the same that they are now. It's uh, uh, it makes my skin crawl thinking about it. It, it. it would be it would have been beautiful if it wasn't so sad, right? It's 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 they say that you should suffer for your art, but it's not right to suffer for somebody else's art. <laughs> so I I hope uh, we haven't ruined this episode for you longtime fans. Well, it's you um, know people it, it all the, people all the time are like you know i can't go back and watch ace ventura anymore because of all the the transphobia in it and like this is another one of those things i can't watch the naked now anymore because of um you know the the, the, the i'll just say what it is the rape that happened on set on camera right right it's, right i i kind of i've gotten a little incensed over this but it's not well, right. okay well well speaking of rape though Oh no! And speaking of speaking of Yar, it's yeah. So the to go back to the fucking data Yar stuff. I gotta take a deep breath. Whew. So data and Yar, they have sex. Um, before they have sex, they kind of rendezvous in in Yar's room, and she's like wearing this sexy quote unquote outfit. And she tells Data a little bit about her past. And one of the, the strange bits of dialogue in there is how she mentioned the roving rape gangs on her home planet and how she managed to avoid them, whatever. And it's like, why would why you know why would you bring that up while you're having sex with somebody or about to have sex with somebody? And the idea was that this would not only heighten the sensuality of the scene. But that this would be Data's cue on how to engage in intercourse with human beings, because obviously that's something he hadn't done before. Um, so it was kind of a line that served a dual purpose. Gene uh, was very adamant that the line not get cut from the final scene. And I'll leave it to you to decide 
if it's effective or not. Some people thought that it set the tone right for what they were about to do. Other people thought it was a little much. Uh, I know where I fell on that discussion. Uh, just a little inappropriate. I just think. a little. I didn't win out. I didn't did not get my way. And yeah, so there's a lot narratively this episode doesn't work tonally it does not work um in the production there's a lot of issues the i'm glad we could lay bare the naked now in such a way that all of this is able to come out but it's just and then you have this fucking picard crusher stuff you remember this picard and crusher um the doctor not Wesley. Oh Crusher. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So they, ha- they like, once the the doctor gets infected, she starts having the hots for Picard. I guess because he told her that her husband was dead. I don't really know what their connection is supposed to be, but um. <laughs> so they go to. She's like, oh. First of all, she says, see me in my ready room. I don't know if she has her own ready room or what. Or Does she say my? She says my. So I don't know if her ready room or Picard's ready room, which is the readier room, but I'm very, Maybe. very interested <laughs> in, in finding out. Maybe it was a euphemism. It might be. But I mean, once they get in there, she starts like unzipping her uniform and like laying into him in several ways. Um but what's strange is that Picard, who is not infected at a, infected at this point, seems completely unaware of what it means when, like, a woman zips down her cleavage and moves within an inch of your face, because he, he's like, "Oh, Crusher, we have to go. We have to go save the day. What are you doing?" <laughs> well, what would you have preferred? He he stayed in the room and had sex with her while the the ship was about to be destroyed. No, but I would have preferred if he was like. You know, Beverly, you're not in the right state of mind. We have this virus going around. It's infected you. You have to get it together. You know, something. Um, th- that makes sense of what Picard would do instead of being like this weird non-human who can't comprehend what a sexual advance is. And then, and then, like, when this... Over the course of that scene, I believe Picard gets infected and he starts, like, getting into it a little bit, but he's, like, trying to resist because mm-hmm. he's not fully infected yet. And Crusher goes to the elevator. Picard stays in the ready room, and they do this little wave to each other. <laughs> the little wave, and it's it's, it's wa- go watch that scene. Go watch Picard wave to Crusher. I wish I had the time code for it because it is so inhuman that what direction was he given that he could not wave correctly? <laughs> it's so awkward. It's it's baffling to me. <laughs> And it's just one of many scenes of the, the episode where you're just scratching your head at the end of it and you're like, what? <laughs> what? Literally, what? Yeah. Yeah. It, it... So many of the scenes fall flat. They do. And we talked about and... the, the tonal reasons and stuff. Right, right, right. But I think my favorite one, mm-hmm. <laughs> the one that really made me laugh, um, was I think it was at the end of Act 2. I think mm-hmm. when Wesley had has just taken control of engineering. Oh my god! And <laughs> I mean, the whole situation's ridiculous. He's like a twelve-year-old with a couple little toys, who basically plays a soundboard of Picard to the entire ship, announcing that he's captain. Which is like in any other episode, this would have been ridiculous. This this would have been nothing. Right, but this happens, and then we're treated to that that uh, that danger musical sting. Right, as as to, it cuts to commercial. Lead us commercial, and it's only it's only when that music plays that I realize, oh, we're supposed to feel some kind of some kind of way about this scene. You know, yeah, this is supposed to we're supposed to feel dread. Meanwhile, um, the smiling face of a 15-year-old Will Wheaton is just displayed up on uh, very prominently on right. the screen. And I, I'm, I, right. I'm sorry, I don't feel danger from that. And, and, and we immediately cut back after commercial, and Will Wheaton's dumb face is, is standing there next to this 
large Asian man playing with toys on the floor. Right. And, and it's like, well, okay, we're really in danger? And even logically, um, let's say that all of the crew is drunk enough that they would believe Picard would say over the over the intercom, I'm turning control of the ship over, the Wesley Crusher. If if he just followed it up with another announcement, oh, I'm rescinding that command. I'm your captain again. Everybody would just probably believe him again. And right, it, it's not that ne- hard. Never does that. It's it's so contrived, is what it is. Yeah. yeah. And what is the payoff for this? That like the the ship because he doesn't have proper command, the ship gets stranded within distance of a of a very slowly exploding star. Um, and like, they're like, all right, well now we have to go get data to fix it. And data starts fixing it superhumanly fast because they convince him somehow. And, uh, they're like, oh, well, this is going to take seven minutes, but we have six minutes until the star hits us, which is just so. Yeah. Contrived. It lacks any kind of impact. It's like, okay, I guess that'll take that long. And I guess this will take this long. It, you only know it because they tell you. You don't innately sense the danger of the situation, which robs it of a lot of its impact. If only Wesley had been creating a repulsor device earlier this episode. Right, and he just like very, very happily be like, oh, you know, I have, I, I can do this. I'll save the day. And I was like, all right, go save the day. And you know what? That's the problem. I forgot about this. The, the All of the people involved in saving the day are the people who are victims of the phenomenon going on. Like, Data's drunk, but they (laughs) still convince him to put all the things back very quickly. Wesley's drunk, but he still fixes his repulsor device to work with the ship and move the star. Meanwhile, you have people like Riker, uh, that very old-looking blonde woman, and for most of the episode, Picard, and I guess Worf, too, who are not affected by the virus and are trying their best to save the situation. When really all of their efforts more or less fail and they have to rely on the people who have already succumbed to save the day. So it's like, I'm supposed to be relating and rooting for these people who have who are resisting and not contracting the virus. And then all of them fail. And it's, how do you structure a narrative like that? It's, yeah, it, it almost seems like relative to, you know, what, uh, what Beverly Crusher was doing or, you know, what... Uh, what Data was doing, what Jordy was doing, mm. all the people who aren't infective kind of just seem to be sitting around for, for like the entirety of the, the episode, except maybe Riker. Well, at, he does sit around at the end, and it, there's a lot of very nice shots of him just sitting outside of engineering with his head in his hands, like, I've done all I can do. <laughs> Please save me, Wesley. Yeah, this episode, I was never one to, to hate the character of Wesley, mm. and I do think he... If I'm remembering correctly, he does get more tolerable. But watching this has made me realize why people hate him. Yeah, I can I can buy that, especially if you like, watch it in sequence and like this is yeah. like, this is how you begin to know Wesley Crusher. It's like all right, but this this okay, so this kid's just a genius because whatever. And Will Wheaton's acting is horrendous. It's really not good. He 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 sounds like a cartoon character. Okay, you know, he's a boy going through puberty, whatever, but, you know, you didn't have to write, make this role. I, I understand yeah. that, you know, Gene's well, needs Gene, at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we're still paying for that. We're still paying for it to this day. Well, Wheaton's not. He, uh, he built a nice career off of uh, nepotism. Good for him. Yeah. Do you have any more thoughts on The Naked Now? Closing thoughts on the naked now. Oh well, I guess kind of, kind of, kind of to to wrap us up a little bit, just about the episode overall, mm. and something we've already kind of talked about. Um, but one of the biggest complaints I think we got from fans about this episode is that the characters don't act like themselves, right? Right. And, um, you know, the the immediate plot aside, that was actually intentional. It was intentional to have an episode like this, specifically where the characters do not act like themselves, in the first season, fairly early on in the first season. 
You're right. Because, yeah, right? Gene, Gene thought the show needed more exposure. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> his idea was uh, the, the actors could, you know, win some awards. Bless his right? heart. And so by giving the actors a more expanded range in this, this one episode, uh, he, he thought they'd have a, kind of an opportunity to show off their acting chops, you know, and win an Emmy. Mm. And um, the scene was with, with Data and Yar, I think, was the real one that they were very keen on submitting to, to the oh, awards yeah. Uh, people. Yeah, yeah, but you know how it goes. So yeah. many snubs. I'll save everybody at home the indignity of looking up the uh, mid-80s Emmys awards and uh, didn't quite get there. No. That's, you know, didn't quite get there is a good way to sum up the episode and, and a good place to leave it. It's uh, It had some kernels of ideas, but mm-hmm. did not quite get there. No. Um, perhaps episode three will. If you would like to find out. I can out, only hope. If you would like to find out how episode three got there or did not get there, join us next time on the Readier Room. And until then, everybody, stay readier. Troublesome little man-child. Consider that in the history of many worlds, there have always been disposable creatures. Beginning, 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 beginning.